But uh, church, at the moment we've started a series in the book of Romans and we continue that series today in Romans chapter 1 verses 18 to 32. Do please have a Bible open and uh, there's an outline of the talk on the back of the piece of paper you were given as you came in. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we pray this morning that you'll help us to understand the bad news which makes the good news about Jesus so good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and it's not about the miracle of bunnies having eggs. Those little brown things bunnies leave behind are not eggs, believe me, don't try to eat them. Uh, Wait for it. Resurrection Sunday is about Jesus. Jesus was dead. He died on the cross. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He miraculously rose again from the dead. And Jesus did all of this to save us, to rescue us. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of Resurrection Sunday. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can be rescued. And it's the message we saw in the passage we looked at last week as we started the book of Romans. Let me read you again from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The message of Jesus saves people. And Paul thinks that that is great news, something not to be ashamed of. But if you think about it, it implies some very uncomfortable things about us it implies that we need saving it implies we're in some kind of danger in some kind of trouble it implies that we can't rescue ourselves I don't know if you've ever ever said something like that to a person if if you've ever been up to a person and said excuse me can I tell you something you're in big trouble with God You're in grave danger with God and you can't rescue yourself. You need to be rescued. I suspect that most people wouldn't think that was a very polite thing to say. Would you? People don't like the idea that they're in deep trouble with God, that they need saving. People think that's that's a rude idea. It's rude to even suggest such a thing. And so... Most people don't think this Easter message about Jesus is good news at all. They're quite happy to have a couple of days off. They don't mind the chocolate eggs. But they're not too keen on this message of salvation through Jesus. They think the whole Jesus thing is unnecessary. More than unnecessary, they think it's just plain rude. You might say they want to rename Resurrection Sunday, Rude Sunday. Do you see the problem? People don't see the need to be saved, so they can't see the need for the message of salvation. And that's why they're sitting at home today and not in here giving thanks and praise to God. And so that's what Paul goes on to address in the next section of Romans. Uh, Right through from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul shows us our need. He shows us 
what we need to be rescued from. Step by step, he takes us through every different kind of person you can imagine and he shows us that we all need to be rescued. Paul starts off in chapter 1 and verse 18 by saying that God's anger is coming. It's coming on to all people who deliberately push down, hide, suppress the truth that they know in themselves about God. Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. The wrath, the anger of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, there's what people need to be rescued from. God's anger. That's the danger people are in. God is angry with them. They're facing his anger. God is angry with people who wickedly suppress the truth about him. So who is that? Who are these terrible, wicked suppressors? Well, as we read on, we see that Paul is talking about everyone. He says, everyone knows that God is there. Everyone knows that God is powerful. Even if they've never heard of Jesus or the Bible, they already know. Everyone knows because God has shown it to them. First, God has done it through his creation. Verse 19, God's anger is coming on everyone who suppresses the truth about God since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. If you jump with me to chapter 2 and verse 14... You see that God has also revealed to people the difference between right and wrong. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. God's requirements are written on their hearts. Chapter 2, verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles, who do not have the law, that's the, the Old Testament, do by nature things required by the law, they're a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness. Their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. blatantly obvious doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you're from you look around at the world and it's perfectly clear or you're looking at your conscience and again it is perfectly clear there is a God an all-powerful God a God who has established right and wrong a God to whom we are accountable people know it deep inside they know it but we are wicked we don't want to be accountable to God we don't want anyone telling us what to do we want to run life our way and so in our wickedness we suppress the truth about God now that makes God really angry and the point is verse 20 No one has any excuse. No one can claim ignorance about this. No one has any excuse. We all deserve to face God's anger. Paul then goes on to describe the kind of cycle or pattern that people and and society get into. The way we suppress the truth about God, God angrily responds. He gives us the pattern three times. 
just so that we get very clear about it. Our suppression, God's angry response. Our suppression, God's angry response. Our suppression, God's angry response. Now, the first time is there in verses 21 to 24. People refuse to thank God or praise him. But then in their so-called wisdom, they, they create some gods that they, can, that they can manipulate for themselves, some gods that they can tell what to do, and they end up in the stupidity of worshipping statues and things. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. I mean, one moment's thought about it and you will see that it is ridiculous to worship a statue. It is ridiculous to worship your house on the North Shore and give up your life for that. It is ridiculous to worship a lizard or a sun or something like that. It's not going to save you. It can't do anything. But yet that is exactly what millions upon millions upon millions of people are doing in our world today. People suppress the truth about God. They worship created things instead, things they can control, things they can make up, a God they're comfortable with. And it makes the real God angry. And so what God does? He gives people over. He gives them over to their own sinful stupidity. He says, you want to reject me and go your own way? You want to be idolatrous? You want uh, all the sexual immorality that goes with idolatry? Well, I'll leave you to it. I'll leave you to it. You can suffer the consequences. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. There's the pattern, our suppression, God's response. Verses 25, we, verse 25, we see the pattern again. People suppress the truth they know about God. They, they swap the truth of worshipping God with the lie of worshipping idols. And again, God in his anger gives people over. He leads them to swap natural sexuality for unnatural homosexuality with all of the sad consequences that follow. Verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Then in case we haven't got it, verse 28, we repeat the pattern again. People suppress what they know about God and so he gives them over to all kinds of terrible sins. Verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. Their gossip, slander as God had is insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And so Paul summarises. Everyone knows there is a God. They know there's a God who's established right and wrong. They know there's a God to whom we're accountable, but they refuse to submit. 
and they applaud it when other people refuse to submit. submit. They have Mardi Gras and they have all sorts of celebrations of people's rejection of God and rebellion. In short, humanity is living in rebellion against God. Verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. It's a confronting passage, isn't it? Perhaps not the sort of passage you would have expected to hear on happy Easter Sunday morning. To be honest, uh, let me let you in on a secret, we're only doing it because I forgot it was Easter when I made up the roster. But this is actually part of why it is so much better to work through books of the Bible instead of following made-up things like a church calendar. Because that's exactly what the essence of idolatry is. You make up something like a church calendar and then you make up a God who you're comfortable with, who you're happy with. A a God who you can form, a God who you can manipulate, a God who does things the way you want. See, you work through books of the Bible and you can't ignore the uncomfortable bits. You have to take each passage as God has given it to us in his word. You have to accept him as he's revealed himself to us instead of make up your own God. And so we're stuck with this confronting passage. It seems to me there are three big issues we need to discuss. First, there's the whole idea of God being angry in the first place. Second, there's the way that he manifests his anger, giving people over to their sin. And thirdly, there's the idea that people know about God even without the Bible or Jesus, that they are without excuse. Three very, very important concepts. So let's look at them one by one. First, the idea of God's anger. Most people don't like the idea that God could get angry. They say it's unworthy of God. They say it's even incompatible with the concept that God is love. Now, the other night I was speaking to an elder from another church. She said to me, I just read the Westminster Confession of Faith for the first time the other day. She's been an elder for decades, but she just read the Westminster Confession of Faith for the first time the other day. And she said, I was horrified. She said, it made me cry. She said to me, Jeff, do you know that the Westminster Confession of Faith is so narrow, it actually says that people who don't believe in Jesus are facing God's anger and are excluded from heaven. She said, I cannot believe that. I've lived too long. I've seen too much to believe in such a narrow, angry God. Well, it all sounds very loving. It all sounds very tolerant. But this passage makes it clear. It makes complete nonsense of the Christian message. The Christian message does not make sense unless God is angry. Because Jesus died on that cross and rose again to save us, to rescue us. If we didn't need saving, then his death was the most ridiculous act of stupidity. What was he doing dying in agony on a cross to save us when we didn't need to be saved in the first place? What was he doing dying on the cross, praying, is there any other way? And God's saying, no, if there was another way all along and people were fine all along. The only reason the Christian message has any relevance at all is because we need rescuing. And the Bible is clear that what we need rescuing from is God's anger on our sin. 
And just as a side issue, one thing I've learned from having children is that being angry is not incompatible with love. It's only because I love my children that I take them and their actions serious, seriously enough to get angry with them. I don't get angry with anyone else's children. I can't be bothered getting angry with them. It's only because I love my children that I take them seriously enough to get angry with them. Anger is not incompatible with love. Well, there's the first issue. Whether you like it or not, whether you think it's rude or not to mention on Easter Sunday, God's anger is real and we need rescuing. Now, the second issue is the way God manifests his anger. This business about handing people over to their sin. And when I think of God's anger, I think of final judgment and hell and, and death and that kind of stuff. And those concepts are here in this passage. Um, Romans 1.32 talks about our sin deserving death. Chapter 2, verse 5 talks about storing up wrath for yourself for the day of God's wrath. I mean, that, that kind of final judgment anger is here. But that's not the focus of this passage, is it? God's anger here is expressed in giving people over to their sin. Not what you might expect. But then, it does make sense. Sorry to tell you where my life is at at the moment, but standing, outside, standing inside Joel's preschool the other day, uh, there was a mum who was calling and calling and calling her little girl to come. Uh, she wanted to take her home or take her out for a milkshake or something like that, but the little girl was insisting that she had to continue to play on the monkey bars. Over and over again she called her until finally she said, OK, little Sarah or whoever it was, I'm going, see you later, mummy doesn't care, you do what you want, and walked out. <clears throat> now, it doesn't always work. <laughs> and parents don't usually mean what they say. I mean, you can't leave a three-year-old to face the consequences of their own actions. But you see the point. The parent is threatening to give the child over to the consequences. You do what you want, but you're stuck with the consequences and you miss out on all the good things I've got for you. Well, that's what God does. He gives us over to our sin. He leaves us to face the consequences and we miss out on the good things that living his way brings. It's actually an interesting way of looking at sin, isn't it? People think sin is freedom. People think sexual immorality is sexual freedom. People think homosexuality is sexual freedom and, and modernness and, and open-mindedness. But these things are actually the very judgment of God. People think they're living the good life, but they're wallowing in sin and guilt and misery. They're hating and hurting each other. They're missing out on the good life. And unless they are rescued, they're going to miss out on the best life on eternal life. So the third issue and final issue here is that everyone knows about God and so they're without excuse. And when I talk to people about Jesus, a common objection I hear is this. People say, Jeff, you go on about this rescue stuff. What about people who've never heard about Jesus? What, what about the tribesmen over in Irian Gyre? How can, how can God judge them? How can you say they need to be saved? I think it's a stupid question. Um, the fact that I'm talking to the person means it's an irrelevant question for them. I mean, they've heard about Jesus. I've just told them about Jesus. And that's the answer I usually give. I say, look, you let, worry, you let God worry about the people who've never heard about Jesus. You just have heard about Jesus. What are you going to do about him? But then, even though I generally try to avoid the issue, it is a real issue, isn't it? 
what is going to happen to people who've never heard about Jesus? Can, can God really judge people just because they, ha- they don't know Jesus? Can he really send them to hell for that? Can, can God really judge people on the basis of what they don't know? Is ignorance of the law really no excuse? How, how can that be just? And if people who haven't heard about Jesus aren't going to be judged, why on earth should we tell them about Jesus? I mean, why should we send missionaries out to them? Are we actually making it worse for them? They're okay as they are, and then we send missionaries out so they hear about Jesus, and then they end up going to hell. Uh, Aren't they better off left alone? Missionaries are unpopular enough as it is, aren't they? Uh, Anthropologists tell us that missionaries are criminals against human society. They go into these pristine tribes where everybody's happy and and they wreck their culture by imposing Christianity upon them. Maybe we should just leave all these people alone. It's a real issue. And here in this passage, we get God's real answer. God will not judge people on the basis of what they don't know. God will judge people on the basis of what they do know. But that's no comfort. Because people do know. All people know there is a God. All people know there is right and wrong. All people know they are accountable before God. But people suppress that knowledge. They push it down until they can't even think about it anymore. But they are without excuse before God. And the fact is, this is proved time and time again when new tribes of people are discovered. Did you know that in the whole history of the world, nobody has ever discovered an atheist tribe? In the whole history of the world, no one has ever, descri- no one has ever discovered an agnostic tribe. What you always find is people who worship idols. And in the whole history of the world, despite Margaret Mead's false evidence... No one has ever found a moral tribe. No one has ever found a tribe where there is peace and stability and harmony. Wherever you go, people know right from wrong. They've got rules about right and wrong, very much the same rules across across humanity. But wherever you go, you find people who break the rules. You find sexual immorality and envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and people making each other miserable and eating each other and so on. There's no such thing as the noble savage. Savages are just plain savage. And they've got no excuse before God. Like you and me, they are people who've rejected God and are suffering the consequences of his anger. Like you and me, people who haven't heard about Jesus need to be rescued. And so we do need to send missionaries. It's desperate. If this is true, and it is true, because it's from the very word of God, this really ups the ante, doesn't it? We're not surrounded by people who are okay. We're surrounded by people upon whom God's anger is coming. They need to know. We need to be brave enough to tell them. And we need to send missionaries. It's the only way they can be rescued. Okay, well, today, despite... what I'm saying. We do celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, We celebrate the salvation that he has won for us and that salvation is a precious, a precious jewel. But do you know how they display jewels? Do you know how they, they, they display them so that you can see how really beautiful they are? What they do, apart from various lights and so on, is they put them up against a black background, maybe some black velvet or something like that. 
that's what this passage in Romans does for us. It's like the black velvet behind the diamond. You will never understand how precious the death and resurrection of Jesus is unless you understand what Paul is talking about here. You will never appreciate it, what it means to be rescued unless you realise you need to be rescued. You will never appreciate what it means to be rescued unless you realise the great danger you are in. Unless you realise that God's anger is coming against all our godlessness and wickedness. So what do you think? Is this rude Sunday for you? Is this irrelevant Sunday for you? Or do you realise your need? Do you appreciate the glorious jewel that we celebrate on Resurrection Sunday? Do you know how precious it is that Jesus really died and rose for you? Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that even though we are richly deserving of your anger, that even though we are without excuse before you, that while we were still sinners, you have demonstrated your love and given Jesus to die and rise again so that we can be rescued. Our Father, please help us to appreciate the desperate need that we have and had and so help us to be filled with thanks and love towards you understanding how precious our salvation really is. Please fill us with the joy of knowing this salvation at Easter and in every time, right through our lives and into eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.